0: There's a free speech crisis on campus, we read and see in the media on a basically weekly basis. Self-appointed watchdog groups rank colleges on free speech scores. Legislators and politicians want to punish universities that don't uphold free speech in ways they define. Is there really a crisis? Do the studies really reveal that students today are less committed to free speech than in an earlier generation? Are people allowed to say what they want? Or do faculty and students in some campuses live in fear of being challenged and then canceled via online campaigns or fired? If the university is predominantly liberal, does that affect what is taught and how students learn? Or should universities better institute a test for hiring committees to make sure they pick enough candidates from all sides of the political spectrum? Does a professor's political position influence the way she grades? I spoke with Jeffrey Sachs, who teaches political science at Acadia University, He holds a PhD in Islamic studies and has written widely on the speech controversies on campus. He looked closely at the data and the studies, and he explained to me how to read these, how to interpret the idea that there's a crisis over speech, and why this debate continues to inflame the passions of so many, both inside and outside of the academy. Willkommen, bienvenue, welcome. No, this is not Cabaret. It's Think About It, a podcast about the power of ideas and how language can change the world with Uli Baer. So I'm really um, excited, Jeff, to have you on this show today. First of all, thank you for coming on Think About It. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Jeff, you're a political scientist, and your area is really not directly this, but you've written quite a lot and participated in discussions about the speech issues on campus. And I wanted to ask you, first of all, how do you get interested in this topic, which concerns and interests a lot of people who are in and outside of academia? Right. Well, as an academic, I have a, I'm a pretty big stakeholder in this issue. And watching,
1: as we all have, this kind of a narrative take hold of free speech crisis, and then the kind of policy responses that politicians have made, it's hard not to watch all this with some degree of alarm. And if, if you're invested, like I am in academia, you kind of want to figure out how much truth is there to what's going on. So I have a kind of a broad interest just from that. But then also, you know, as a, as a contingent faculty member myself, I'm very aware of some of the dynamics that are shaping free speech envi- speech environments on campus. Especially for people like myself who are a bit more vulnerable because we're not tenure track and uh, it's kind of hard not to take it seriously and, and puzzle out to the best you can kind of what's going on.
0: Can you say something about this, the contingent status and why, and clearly it does, why it would be different for, and I really appreciate sort of having this perspective on there. I'm a tenured faculty member, so what would be the differences there?
1: Well, it's it's not
0: difficult for any academic to imagine the
1: enormous uh, differences and, and the kinds of vulnerability that contingent faculty face in this area. Whether it's speech that faculty engage in that are critical of the administration or the university or kind of more broad public engagement, Um, We're vulnerable to blowback, whether from students, admins, the outside community in a way that tenure track and tenured faculty aren't, or at least I should say we're more vulnerable than those other other kinds of academics. You know, when you look at what's going on right now in the broader U.S. and Canadian climate, where there's so much skepticism or even outright hostility towards the academy from some people it puts contingent faculty in a really
0: difficult position. And for people who are not academics or contingent faculty, you would think all faculty have academic freedom and the university should protect everybody's Right, which academic freedom means to research study and teach what they think is appropriate right but what you're saying here there's a contractual difference contingent faculty are addressed on contracts whereas tenured faculty have much more much stronger protections
1: that's right that's right it depends on the institution whether or not the faculty is unionized um and whether the whether that, that unionization encompasses uh contingent faculty but right for for anybody who's not involved in academia i'm sure All academics look broadly the same. I think for a lot of students, they labor under the misconception that if there is a person in a suit in the front of the room, that person is a professor. The reality is often not the case. Teaching duties in particular are increasingly being taken over by adjunct faculty and contingent faculty and, and also graduate students as well. And uh, without the kinds of broad academic freedom and free speech protections that you yourself and, and your colleagues have, we have to be much more cautious about what we say. And and I, I want to highlight in particular this kind of um, this trap now where public engagement is an increasingly important component of what administrators want academics to do. That includes those of us who are on the market. And uh, it puts us in this impos- impossible situation where we are being asked to engage with a public that might not want to hear what we have to say and at a time of legislative retrench or financial re, uh, retrenchment and the uh, the importance of pr for universities it really makes it
0: hard for us to uh, engage the way we feel we ought to with the public right and what you just said that there is an expectation which probably wasn't as strong that academics should speak to and with the public and Academics, many academics have always done things that engage the public. Many academics have also done things that only concern their fields because it's specialized and it seems maybe perhaps a bit remote or it's considered pure research, even in the, in the hard sciences. Let's say it's not only in the humanities. where people do research, it has no direct application. That used to be where the university says, you do that work, you don't need to really engage with the public. There's added pressure now on everyone to participate and engage with the public and to go back to one thing you said, there's much more skepticism about academia and about the, about the university. While we have 16 million college students in the U.S. right now, there are 16 million people who are investing a lot of time and a lot of money to get a degree, either a two-year or four-year degree. And at the same time, this kind of skepticism, how do you make sense of that, this skepticism, and how does it then inform this whole discussion around speech?
1: Well, I think it would be naive. Of us to, to, to divorce those two points you just made. Um, there, I'm sure that one of the sources of skepticism, or that, I guess the appeal of, of the skeptical position, is due in part to the enormous you know, shovels of money that students and parents are throwing at universities. I don't know what to, to what extent you know, there's a direct relationship between the two, but I'd be surprised if there was no relationship at all. People want their money's worth. And we probably also you know want to see our values reflected in uh, in the values of the university. If you don't see that being reflected, you might become more skeptical. But I don't think that's really what it is, ultimately. The timing doesn't work out. What I mean is that if you look at at survey data from Pew and Gallup in particular, there was an enormous spike in hostility or skepticism towards the university, towards academia uh, in around the year twenty. 20- 13 to 2015. It's a recent phenomenon. There's also a real bipartisan schism that happens or then, a partisan schism rather, where Republicans and Republican leaners become much more skeptical toward the university in around the year 2014-15, even as Democrats, uh, Democratic voters kind of remain even in their levels of support or even a bit of an increase. So what's going on there? I think it's hard to divorce that kind of skepticism from the larger culture war that's kind of taken hold and the conscription of the university into that culture war as, a, as an actor and as a battlefield. The broad conservative critique of the academy is old. You know, it, We see it whether through Alan Bloom or Buckley's God and Man and Yale, or you know, e- even much older than that. The American conservatism has always had a level of anxiety toward the Academy. So we can't just uh, chalk this up to long-term trends. Something is different right now that that we need to look for to explain this big uh, this big shift. And I think that's where we look to this, the salience
0: of the Academy as a culture war issue in just the last few electoral cycles. So Buckley in the 50s, Man and God at Yale, or you know Alan Bloom, The Closing of the American Mind. I always read those books as Um, They wanted their type of the academy. They wanted the correct values to be taught. They wanted a conservative institution that preserved tradition. And I always felt, being in the university for so long, I always think we try to teach new innovative things and creativity and entrepreneurship and how to think outside the box. We also try to teach the tradition, and that they should know where we come from, how we've become who we are, etc., and the most ancient texts. So there seemed to be a, a conservative strand that said the university is going a bit in the wrong direction, but the university inherently is a good thing. Buckley was, and Alan Bloom were deeply committed to the institution of the university. Has that become something else now in this, in, these, in this very recent trend that you're seeing, that the universities are being attacked for doing what are they doing wrong, or are they just inherently not the right thing? That's that's I think that's perceptive. There's a bit of a schizophrenia, I think, in the the
1: the broad conservative critique of the of the academy, and particularly of the humanities, right? On the one hand, there's this valorization of the humanities and the Western canon and a kind of great books view of what the humanities ought to be, and they want that taught rigorously. On the other hand, now I think increasingly we're seeing this this other critique, which is that universities are not preparing students for the 21st century workforce, that we need more emphasis on STEM, that humanities are a waste of time. So we see these these two critiques running side by side. On the one hand, the humanities, which are valuable, are being taught improperly by postmodernists and Marxists and so forth. And then also this critique that says too much money is being spent on the humanities. It should be spent instead on engineering and medicine, right? And I think it probably is fair to say that this second critique is is a new actor, is, is a new kind of argument that's being made right now. It's probably, well, I don't know quite what, the, what its origins are. It might have to do with just this kind of uh, neoliberalization or this kind of reduction in spending uh, and a reluctance to invest in the university if there's not a tangible kind of
0: uh, economic payoff. Right. So to put this very sharply, so are these conservative critiques saying we should have very sophisticated trade schools in the best sense of the word? We should develop skills. There should be engineering campuses and computer science and STEM campuses. And the rest is just kind of garnish. And you have a course here and there and you read some ideally some great books. I'm a great books person, so it's, I do a podcast on great books, and I spend a lot of time reading a lot of really long, difficult books. So it's funny to me. But what you're saying is they want to sideline the, the humanities because, for two reasons because they thought they've become too political in the wrong way, or they're not useful. And it's, I think it's important to say those are two separate arguments.
1: I think they are. And, and I think you see both. They're both very, very they have a, a lot of currency right now. Terms like cultural Marxist which has a very specific meaning to the extent it has, it has a meaning at all. It has a very specific meaning. And now it's been taken up and, and used to mean this kind of, I don't know what it means. It, it refers to, I suppose, a kind of like everything from critical race theory to postmodernism to poststructuralism. It means all kinds of things now.
0: But its it's really interesting to me, sort of cultural Marxism. It means all these things. And I'm trying to think, what's the other way of teaching and studying? Because does it... Just mean to have a critical perspective on the tradition, which everyone from Plato on has had, right? There's, there's no uncritical stance on one's own tradition. That's the entire tradition is one critical reinvestigation of itself. But they're too, too leftist, right? That's the idea of cultural Marxism. They have an agenda.
1: Right, it, it's, it, they're too leftist, and I think you know they're, it's not. They're, they're also the wrong kind of left. This is really interesting that we see oh. this emerging. This, there's this critique that I think is gaining currency among the academic, the academy's critics, that basically says you know liberalism, as it's traditionally understood, is is fine. By which they mean I think a kind of materialist, a focus on on uh, things other than identity, things other than race, gender. I'm not invested in these terms at all. I'm just trying to give you the kind of way that, that they, they paint the picture. And then the argument is that the humanities have become captured by these kinds of identity-based interest groups, and the result is this fixation on race, on gender, on sexuality, and that it turns everything into a text and every text into a form of oppression or of, um, of bias. And i I think you know this, this this the critique is is not a very skillful one, but i'm I'm surprised at the kind of inroads it's made, and the fact that you see cultural Marxism as a term being used you know by Donald Trump
0: jr. tells you something about the the currency it's achieved right, right. so what's interesting is politicized in a debate outside of the academy It's also used in the academy. They are a kind of intermural wars between academics, and I'm sure there are lots of academics who share some of Donald Trump Jr.'s views about cultural Marxism. There are also some who are, disagree with him strongly, so we can't say it's outside and inside. But this is one part that informs this whole debate about speech on campus. But to sort of go back to this, what you said, there was a new form of critique, and I think you said 14, 2013 to fifteen, or something like that?
1: Right. Well, I think that's when it starts to really appear in the survey data. Um, that's where we see the strong partisan skew where Republican and Republican leaders start to make the claim that the academy is on the wrong track that it's it's not healthy that it's bad for America. When pollsters ask you know respondents what their critique is of the academy, the number one issue by far is tuition costs, right the expenses and that's a that's a complaint that's shared by both parties. But when you kind of dig down in the data and look to see where the partisan skew is. It has to do with the politicization of pedagogy. Conservatives in particular are very concerned that faculty are no longer teaching the material they've been asked to teach. Instead, they are teaching students liberal values, leftist values, and that it's corrupting their their, their kids. It's corrupting their students. So that in particular, you see dramatically increase as an issue for for conservative and Republican voters in in around 2015 or so. And I think that's probably driving a lot of this, this anger. It's, it's bringing a lot of different trends together, and it's giving it a kind of a partisan hook, and we're seeing that now in the numbers.
0: And I think there was a study around those years where it said Republicans think that actually American college is not good for anyone to go to or it's bad for America. Whereas I had assumed that higher education is the number one export item and the number one industry in america just given the number of non-us students trying to study in this country in in u.s and canada as well so there's a strange disconnect they say this is not being embraced saying this is the greatest thing we've done we have created the greatest universities in the world with a few notable exceptions in some other countries but actually really in the top 50 top 100 top 150 top 200 we have countries such as China and India who are really working hard to try to put a university on the map. And we have dozens on that map, which is problematic in a way, but at the same time says something. And yet what you said that people started saying universities are not good for my kids or for the country itself.
1: Right. And you know, I, I, I think it, it is important to, to caveat this. You know, these people who, who are making this claim, who have that critique, they are probably still going to try to get their kid into a good university. They're probably still going to, you know, pay that tuition, hire that SAT tutor if they can. So, you know, there's a question of are they really putting their money where their mouth is? I haven't looked closely enough at enrollment data and partisan breakdown of, of families to know whether there really is this drop. But that doesn't change, I think, like the the salience of the critique and and how we're seeing that manifest itself by policymakers who are trying to puzzle out ways of maybe changing the composition of faculty or limiting the kinds of speech and activism that students and faculty are permitted to engage in. So, you know, people are not probably yet voting with their wallets or their feet in the sense of pulling their kids out of school, but policymakers
0: are responding to this change in in sentiments? Against the backdrop of this severe reduction in funding over the last 30 or 40 years. So in some ways you're saying, so America has really divested in its higher education from the 70s and 80s. So they're saying it's gotten so incredibly expensive. One way to respond to that would be, it's because the government and state levels have cut the funding. And so universities are responding somewhat defensively and saying we've gotten so expensive because there's less funding available, but that doesn't register. But the second point you made that legislators or people saying university is too liberal and we ought to change that. We need to impose on what they call viewpoint diversity or they say we need to balance that. There are too many liberals in the university. The data you looked at, do you think they're generally right that there's a lot of liberals in universities or there's a general trend toward liberal mindset among faculty and students?
1: Yeah. Well, students, I can't say, but for fa- faculty, yeah, there is. The data is, is pretty unanimous on this, on this point. Um, we have good surveys coming out of Higher Education Research Institute, which is an institute at UCLA for the, for the last you know 60 years or so. And their liberal faculty have always been overrepresented in the university. But something changed around the year 2004. And the proportion of liberal faculty spiked dramatically, where while well, moderates and, and public, or, uh, conservative leaners started to drop. I can tell you right now, I looked at the, the Kiri data for 2016 and 17 of undergraduate instructors. These are faculty who teach undergraduate students. About 48 or 49% of all faculty self-identify as liberal whereas only about 12% identify as conservative. There are as many liberal who identify as far left as are identify as mainstream right. So there is, it's real, the, the imbalance is real. Whether that equals view, a lack of viewpoint diversity is a more complex question. But in terms of political ideology and, and in terms of partisan identity, there's a real skew toward the left in the faculty. And while it's always been there, it's gotten much more extreme
0: recently. So and what are people concerned with to say, well, so what are their big worries that there's some more liberal identified faculty?
1: Well, I think the number one worry, which I, I think is unfounded, is indoctrination, right? Parents are worried that their students are going to be indoctrinated into liberal values. Uh, now, the there's very, very weak evidence that faculty are good at changing the, political opinions and values of students. I think that's kind of depressing when you think about it. We, we, we imagine ourselves kind of cultivating certain values in our students, uh, hopefully good ones. Unfortunately, we're not very good at it. The values that a, a student comes into school with for a traditional four-year degree are usually the ones that he or she leaves with. So there's not a lot of sign that that indoctrination happens. There's also not much evidence that faculty are trying to indoctrinate students. Nevertheless, the myth persists, and it really drives conservative parents up the wall and voters up the wall. So that's, that's the major concern. Then you have people like your colleague, Jonathan Haidt, at the Stern Business School, who, who makes a separate point. He says that the lack of viewpoint diversity is bad for research, right? That a conservative social scientist, because of his or her conservative values, would attack a problem differently than a liberal would, or at least that they might and that the lack of viewpoint diversity is bad the same way that other kinds of lacks of diversity are bad. And uh, it's bad for research, it's bad for pedagogy, it's bad for peer review, and, uh, and
0: that's the case he makes. So this is a, a, a complicated claim that actual methodology is shaped by political persuasion, whereas other people would like to believe that methodology is something that is vetted, peer-reviewed, established as the most effective, constantly revised, but not shaped by political values. So in some ways, so he's saying there's some suspicion that the political leanings shape both the research questions and the way they're approached. Someone like that, would would they assume that hiring more people who are identified as Republican, let's assume people who identify as such go into fields such as mine, which is comparative literature and photography, which is not a very lucrative field to go into. So in some ways, maybe there's another kind of original kind of filtering why people end up in these fields. Would that help to have more professors around? Because that assumes the university works at this huge kind of interdependent organism, that if there were more people in my department working on different things, that would be better for everybody.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm not trying to, I, I'm no longer speaking for for um, for Jonathan Haidt, because I, I don't know what, what how to answer the question. I think more broadly, the the idea is, yes, that especially for the social sciences, and uh, and I think, uh, you know, that this would make a big difference. And I think it's no mistake that a lot of the people associated with an organization like Heterodox Academy, which Jonathan Haidt co-founded, Many of them are psychologists, behavioral scientists, and they think that there is a clear, there's, there's damage that liberal hegemony, as they would, you know, to use that term, that liberal hegemony uh, does to psychological science, that it distorts research agendas, it changes the kinds of questions and topics that get tackled. I, I do wanna say this, I think I, I think that they are right up to a point, in the sense that I think it takes a kind of naivete And a kind of forgetting, we have to ignore a lot of what we know about how ideology and institutions interact with one another to convince ourselves that the overwhelming preponderance of of one ideology in in an academic space doesn't shape the kind of work that academics do, right? There's no other institution in American life that an academic, a social scientist, or a a humanities scholar would look at with a skew as dramatic as, as the academies is and not think that it affects the kinds of work that community does. So I think we have to take that critique that they're making seriously. Where that puts us in terms of should we care, policy responses, those are all separate questions. But I am persuaded, at least, that the imbalance must have some kind of impact. Because I know certainly when I think about what my ne- my next research project is, you know, I'm not just drawing that out of the ether. I'm 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 making my decision based on lots of things, and I'm sure that my own values have
0: a role to play. Right. And what I'm really interested in is when you're making your decision, the academic freedom given to you, even as contingent faculty, that hopefully no chair or dean is going to tell you you have to research this next project now. It is not what we associated with a kind of totalitarian sort of think tank where you say, this is your project now, Jeff, you're going to work on that for five years, produce a few papers, publish them. You say, no, I want to study this other thing. I may even study a thing that is not going to pan out because the idea of research is you're going to test ideas. You don't even know whether they're going to be the ones you really want to do. So there's this idea that the university is a non-political space in this way. It isn't determined by people. So the critique you're saying could be right. The solution is a complicated one because I think it touches on a certain aspect of the institution and says, well, maybe we're all liberals. Maybe many of us in some department are conservatives, and there are some departments where they are more conservatives than liberals. But it's no one's role to go in there and say you should actually study other things or you have a general bias. So I understand the the effort to say there's an issue here, but the corrective seems to do something that the university has tried to resist, to politicize itself from the outside or from some other place.
1: Right, no, and 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 here I agree with you. I, I object to most ways that are being proposed to increase viewpoint diversity in the academy. And in particular, I'm really skeptical of the idea that we can engineer intellectual diversity. When you think about how this process would work of increasing conservative faculty. I think the most obvious solution is for hiring committees to somehow prioritize or take into account a person's political ideology. I think that's a disaster, right? I I think, you know, the way that would operate, the way that would look is it would mean somebody having to somehow demonstrate to the satisfaction of the interviewer his or her conservatism. What does that look like right now? Conservatism is a concept that's always in flux, and perhaps especially so right now, what sort of questions would a job committee ask to draw out and identify the degree of diversity that this conservative would add? I can't really fathom, I can't wrap my brain around how it works, except at the level of just kind of like a broad, empty commitment on the part of a com- you know a committee where they say, we especially welcome applicants who happen to be non-liberals. When you get down to what the what an actual solution would look like at the level of a hiring committee, it, it looks terrible.
0: It looks like a disaster to me. I want to move on to how this connects to the speech discussion, but. What's interesting, I think, about what you're saying, what you're describing is that there's there's some competing narratives on both sides, that there are conservatives who are saying we are marginalized or not fully represented. We have a harder time maybe getting traction. And then there are decades of testimonies from people saying we are liberal or we're not in the mainstream and we have a very hard time to gain a foothold in the academy. And if you look at certain departments that tend to skew entirely conservative or certain types of viewpoints. They're saying, actually, the inroads made by all the liberal professors have been a very hard path. They weren't automatic. But to, this is connected. So let's say we don't quite know what the solution would be if there's liberal bias in the academy. Okay. Well, how does this connect to these huge public discussions that you've also studied around speech on campus? Which becomes and, and I lived through speech controversies in the '90s with Robert Maplethorpe and Karen Finley, and they were always centered. They were usually centered on obscenity and pornography, on feminism, and on race. This time we're living through something, and I always, I always, I've talked to a lot of people on this podcast whether this is different from previous debates over the young throwing up their arms. Well, what do they, What do they say? Um, they say there's something different. And they say a couple of factors, social media is a factor, the general, what you've identified now for the first time, really, this kind of general skepticism or even attack on universities and higher education, the political distrust of academia, where politicians generally used to think, we need to get academia right, but it's one of the greatest things we have in our country. And now there's a sense, open attacks on universities by politicians saying these are the worst things. That's shifted something. And that the speech debate also concerns the entire country, it seems. That one event, that one little college, the entire nation pays attention. So the question is, how does it, from the liberal kind of um, predominance of liberal thinking in universities, which is identified as a problem by conservatives, conservatives largely have also identified, not only conservatives, that there's a speech problem on campus, that there's not not enough free speech, or they always oppose free speech to something else. I don't know what the other option is, like censorship or et cetera. Yeah,
1: Yeah, no, there's uh, this issue of the composition of the faculty and and the lack of ideological diversity, so to speak. Conceptually, there's no reason why that can't be kept separate from this issue of free speech. They're constantly conflated, however, because the conservative critique very often is not there is an attack on free speech on campus. It's often there's an attack on conservative speech on campus, there's an attack on conservative values on campus. The two are conflated so often that it's hard not to think that one is motivating the other. When you look at the kind of narrative that's emerged about campus free speech, it's very much driven by the right, it's very much driven by conservatives who now believe that there is like a that they have taken up the mantle of free speech as a way of framing
0: what they what they view more broadly as kind of an attack on conservative speech. And the fact that it's politicized in a way, but there is a there is an issue there. Because if it's conservative speech ultimately touches on everybody's right to speak. We know these arguments very well. When you looked at these uh, at the data and the surveys are there really that many incidents and I've, i'm right. i have been really interested in the few incidents that have generated this huge amount of commentary when you have as i said 16 million college students over 4000 colleges and universities that means tens if not hundreds of thousands of events plus classes every year where nothing controversial seems to happen and i do not believe that all of those are just coddled students being brainwashed by liberal professors. There are lots of difficult things being discussed all day long, but a few things have become these flashpoints in this culture of war. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely.
1: And and, and here, uh, you know, I, I, I completely agree. We're talking about an enormous population of students, admins, faculty, and institutions. And we're looking at a vanishingly small number of actual incidents that we can point to, whether that includes faculty being fired, allegedly for speech, or students who are deplatforming invited speakers. These are very, very low numbers. We we don't have a perfect handle on the numbers, but one of the best sources that we do have, for all its problems, is FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. And they maintain a disinvitation database that purports to measure the number of, uh, record the, the incidence of, kind of broadly speaking, Speakers who are deplatformed. There were about, I think, 16 deplatforming events that they point to as occurring in 2018. 16 out of how 16. many? 16. 16 out of, I don't know how many hundreds of, you know, really tens of thousands of events, and thousands and thousands of controversial speakers, quote unquote, invited to campuses. Last year, I put together, just for my own kind of amusement, a long, long list of speakers like Ben Shapiro, Christine Hoff Summers, Donald Trump Jr., who appeared at universities over the course of the year, uh, just to get a handle on all the events that we don't hear about because nothing happens. And, Uli, the the list was very long, you know, the, the number of incidents that go off without a hitch that don't uh, you know? arouse any kind of controversy or, or comment is so vast, and uh, it's the easiest thing to forget about when you approach that, this topic, because you only hear about Middlebury, you only hear about Berkeley, and then they become stand-ins for all the students.
0: What's the great alarm? Why, why focus on 16 events? It's like me focusing on the two musicians who fell down on stage doing a concert and say, we have a crisis in performance in America because people faint on stage. And you'd think there's tens of thousands of concerts and one person fainted on stage. And I think now we have to rethink the music industry. This seems so odd to turn this into a... And, but I understand the, the worry behind it. But nonetheless, to turn these examples, and, and I want to say, ask you something about fire. So fire does this database. Do they include religious universities that rit- routinely do not invite um, people that they consider controversial? Okay, let
1: me take that question first, and then I'll jump yes. back. Yes. So uh, the database does include religious universities. But for a lot of reasons, it undercounts dramatically. Probably the number of disinvitations and deplatformings that occur related to universities, and that's because Fire relies on media. Fire relies on media reports of a deplatforming before they can record it in their database. And all, most of the deplatformings that that captures then are disruptive student ones. What it misses are all the one, all the events that are canceled because of administrators. Administrators who quietly prevent a student group from inviting who they want to invite or cut off funding to groups whose values do not align with the administrations. The degree of censorship and the degree of deplatforming, one way or another, that occurs in religious universities is enormous. It does not get captured, however, by FIRES dataset
0: for the most, most of the time because it doesn't arouse real media comment. But that's really, I just want to st- stay for one moment with this. It's interesting. I can, they have their own methodology. They can use it. I personally find it unpersuasive. What it, interesting, what it signals is something that a lot of people on the podcast have talked about. There are other values at stake, that they're saying religious universities have other values that we just don't want to touch. And so they have a right to exclude these people. Whereas a liberal or a non-religious university has one value, which is framed as free speech, look through the lens correctly or incorrectly of the First Amendment, say that must be the only value. It doesn't compete with... So I find a database that doesn't include that a bit odd, and I do think, you know, I'm not a statistician, and I don't know how to read these things. That's why I'm talking to you. But it seems to be a loop to say we're going to pick up media stories and then feed the media the story that there's such, they're such a crisis. There's something to me, isn't there sort of a corrective mechanism or a critical mechanism to say are the media stories representative what if I didn't hear about, you know, someone who didn't get invited or didn't get their fee paid and then decided not to go to a university?
1: No, it, it's true. I've dug up over the last year, you know, about a dozen different disinvitations at religious universities that are absent from Fire's database. And, you know, in some cases, there's no real excuse. For instance, there is a, a national organization called the, I think it's called the Cardinal Newman Society, or maybe it's the Newman Society, which enforces Catholic orthodoxy or tries to at at American Catholic universities and it, it is a organized funded national campaign that has it's one of its specific programs forcing catholic universities to deplatform speakers at commencement ceremonies who do not hew to catholic doctrine on things like abortion and and, and access to, to that this is you know, this is an, this is a national effort well funded by the catholic universe, by uh, the catholic church in america and you better believe that if there were an equivalent national organization on the left of liberals doing something similar, as well-funded, as well-organized, and as well-publicized as the Newman Society is, you would see free speech actors losing their minds over it.
0: Well, so so we can just hope that FIRE and organizations will pick this up and um, severely criticize an organization that favors deplatforming. I don't think right. that's going to happen yet, but it's interesting to say, let's go back to what... What makes people so upset about this that occasionally a speaker doesn't come if tens of thousands of other speakers come? What's again, again, I'm going to give you what they would say first.
1: And they're going to say every time self-censorship, yes. that this is the tip of the iceberg and that there's this vast reservoir of uh, – or to make a metaphors – a vast reservoir of similar you know, uh, people who are never invited because – of self-censorship by students and inviting groups, or a speaker who would love to come but is scared because they're worried about what might happen to them. So that the, the idea is that even though there are very few incidents we can point to, there is this untold story of speakers that we would have had otherwise. Okay, so what do you say to this? Well, self-censorship is an incredibly difficult thing to measure for obvious reasons, right? How do you measure an absence, a counterfactual? You can't really. And I think... <laughs> Personally, I think that puts the onus on the critics. The onus, they can't just assert an absence of self-censorship and then walk away from the table thinking they've made their case. So I'm a bit skeptical of the idea that there is this broad crisis where we should be seeing far more speakers than we are. And on top of that, they point to this chilling effect that they claim has taken over the university and and is squelching speech and is squelching inviting speakers. I can tell you there, if anything, I feel like there's been a heating effect, that there are is a whole new industry of speaker bureaus and organizations whose only goal is to invite the most inflammatory and controversial speakers possible. There's a whole industry now of speakers who sell themselves to college Republicans or co- campus conservatives. They sell themselves as being able to trigger the lips, as uh, causing outrage, as shaking things up. And when you actually listen to what students say when they're asked, why are you inviting a controversial speaker like Milo Yiannopoulos? They'll tell you it's because we want to anger people. We want to shake things up. We want to frustrate people. Now that's a heating effect, not a chilling effect. That's people who would otherwise not invite a controversial speaker doing so because they want to anger someone. I think that's a fascinating phenomenon that we can point to, that we can kind of measure. It it kind of undermines this core claim of a broad
0: campus self-censorship. And I think it gets to something that informs this debate. When there's a complainting, there's self-censorship or conservative faculty or students don't feel they can speak out or there aren't enough conservative faculty, there is a story that To use a shorthand term not quite correct but there's a bit of a victim story to say these people are marginalized on campus let's say they're using the same language that they've picked up from what they also malign but there's power and money now and what you said they are funded efforts and that's quite interesting for universities who have to start paying attention to say when someone comes to campus and is externally funded is that really a student group's prerogative to invite people Are all the students groups given equal access to that? Not really, because some outside people come and they bring their own money, essentially. And the other one is that, as you mentioned earlier, legislators, including President Trump now, weigh in on this. And his executive order weighs in and says, nine federal offices and departments will look carefully whether you uphold a very vaguely defined idea that there's freedom of expression on campus. So there's power and money behind a certain effort that really skews in one direction, because, as you're saying, it doesn't really deal with cases where liberals have come to campus and have been, you know, not received or deplatformed.
1: Right. Uh, the money behind this effort is new. And the kind of money being showered on conservative watchdog groups of the academy, that's really new. We've always had actors like David Horowitz. You know, he has his the uh, 100 Most Dangerous Academics in America We've always had groups like Campus Watch, which has been around since the 90s and kind of monitors how the Middle East and Israel are taught, in, are taught about in, in, in college campuses. What's new is organizations like Turning Point USA, which maintains a professor watch list that records and categorizes professors in America to tell which ones have liberal bias and which ones are out of control cultural Marxists. We have new media sources like Campus Reform, which was founded, in I think, 2011, and the College Fix, uh, which was founded in 2009. Those might be reversed. But we have these new media organizations as well that function as conservative watchdog groups, monitoring the academy, publicizing controversial comments by faculty, provided they have a a liberal skew, and uh, trying to gin up outrage wherever they can. That kind of money, and there's real money behind these organizations. That is new, and that's that's alarming.
0: That's really interesting to me. What do you think universities should do? So these um, watchdog organizations, they create lists of universities that they send to potential, that they make public to say potential donors should take a look at this and say, do you want to give to a university where? And this is usually the phrase where free speech is not protected, and. I guess they think something else goes on there, that there's censorship or et cetera. But universities could ignore this and say, well, these are just groups on the internet. They rank us. We don't really care. Or should universities... What's, what I'm trying to get to is the what sounds to me like a bit of a contradiction to say, I'm going to make a watchdog group and start ranking universities and tell people not to give money or presumably tell students not to go there. Isn't that interfering in this whole robust debate or... Unless they would also say, we're also going to fund the other side and have a leftist watch group as well. Right. Well, no, there's, <laughs>
1: there's a massive point of hypocrisy here. When I think about what the threats are to free speech on campus, Turning Point USA's professor watch list is near the top of that list. It's hard to imagine a more obvious and more blatant attack on the free speech rights of faculty than a list that organized and collates and systematizes them on the basis of whether or not they've uttered, quote unquote, controversial remarks. Campus Reform, this news, this media source I mentioned, this website, you know, it's incredibly well-funded. It relies on student reporters on campuses across America, including your own, I'm sure, that identifies any kind of attack on conservatism or any kind of controversial remark that a professor makes and then funnels enormous outrage and hostility uh, towards those those faculty. Let me give you a a really clear example of, of how this works. Campus reform, at least for a long time, purported to be an organization committed to the free speech rights of students and faculty. Parallel to this though, they do other things. For instance, right now they've targeted a University of Georgia graduate student who in the context of his own social media account said certain things about white people and race and conservatives that is controversial. He said this on his own personal Facebook page. Campus reform, however, has been beating the drum about this guy for probably the better part of six months now in an effort to have him punished, in an effort to get donors to pull money from the school. And and, and they actually ginned up enough outrage that he was hauled before a disciplinary committee, again, for comments that he made in the context of his own personal social media account. How in campus reform's mind these two objectives live side by side, I don't know. I don't know how, on the one hand, they can purport to care about faculty free speech rights, and on the other hand, so aggressively pursue a graduate student for comments he makes in his own private capacity. And I think it speaks to, again, these two critiques operating side by side. On the one hand, there's not enough free speech on campus. On the other hand, the kind of speech we do have is the wrong kind of speech. We need more conservative speech. They are constantly shifting back and forth, and it's hard after a while not to grow cynical about their reasoning.
0: But I'm really listening to this example, and in some ways what you're calling this hypocrisy They're using exactly the tactics that they are claiming are used against conservative speakers. And in some ways, what's been interesting to me, why have the media largely fallen for this narrative for quite some time? I think there's a change now. I think there's something, and you have published uh, several pieces to say, there's some concerns, but it's somewhat manufactured. I've, I've talked to a couple of journalists, and I think sometimes there's a bit of a confusion that journalists confuse freedom of the press with academic freedom and freedom of speech in the universities and for good reason because the press is also under attack in many ways and there's a lot of suspicion toward the press and the media in general just like there's suspicion toward academia. But when this hypocrisy comes to your attention, how do you make sense of it? Do you say this is just an idiotic controversy that isn't really a controversy and we got to move on? Or should universities be a bit more concerned and say there's something larger at stake here and we better assert ourselves and explain what we do in society?
1: Well, yeah, it's on the one hand, I think, you know, there are incidents that are concerning to me. What happened in Middlebury, for instance, or Berkeley, those are obviously problems that should not have happened. It's difficult, though, for me to kind of Explain why we should take those things seriously and try to cultivate a culture of free speech on campus while at the same time reminding people to keep this problem in proportion and in perspective. I think that journalists love a good story about young people out of control, about political correctness run amok. There's something so appealing to somebody who is now a professional, their academic. Experience is far in the rearview mirror. It's it's, it's very tempting to look back with some degree of kind of smug satisfaction and nostalgia and, and think to themselves, well, this never would have happened in my day. You know, kids today are so coddled, they're so babied, they're snowflakes, something is wrong, something's gone wrong. Every generation obviously believes that they were the last real generation of tough people, that students in their day had it right, and ever since then it's been downhill. That is, a, it's a very, very hard to counteract that instinct in people and perhaps especially in journalists who, you know, their job is to, if they're opinion journalists at least, is to kind of uh, draw these big conclusions about narratives and wrap it up in a bow. And, and PC run amok is a very appealing way to wrap up things in a bow for your journalists. So, you know, I, what I'm trying to do, I think, with what I'm writing is not to say there are no problems or that what happened in Middlebury and Berkeley is okay. There are problems, and they weren't okay. But I'm trying to urge people to kind of step back, let the data do the talking, and not let this instinct that they have run rampant over their kind of capacity to, to think things through rationally.
0: I looked at a couple of the surveys that you've really interpreted and kind of made sense of for me. In one of them, it says that I think a night foundation survey, 1% of the students said they would use violent protest to shut down the speaker. 1% out of 1,250 students that are representative of 16 million, I presume. And as I said, I don't really understand how statistics work, but that seems an odd conclusion. So there's 1% of kids who'd say, I would throw a chair or do something really bad, really wrong which I can't do in any circumstances in my college. I'll be disciplined no matter whether it's about speech or about something else. So what would you say to students who have been characterized a bit as saying you're overly sensitive or you're overreacting or you're shouting down or you're all like the kids or the people uh, at Middlebury, which went really out of control. There was violence involved. And they're being told largely you have to put up with everything until there's a direct threat. And they've been told by a lot of people, and I've interviewed a lot of people who have sort of corrected this a bit, constitutional experts, really, that some of the top constitutional experts, they've been told, especially racist speech, hate speech, you should put up with it. It's good for you. you learn to deal with the real world. What would you say to your students when they say, well, Professor Sachs, that doesn't really make sense to us because I'm in a university. I don't need to be subjected to this. I'm not learning anything. And and you're saying, well, but you want to go in the direction of those people who criticize you for being overly sensitive, what do you think? How do you think students should participate in framing this debate correctly? Since I think it's a bit distorted right now, and it's not really helping um, to get this distortion. Uh, how, how, how should we frame? How it? should how should students actually participate in this? Because I think you're doing. Really important work to look at these data sets really carefully in these studies and say, look, let's slow down a bit and say there's not just a huge crisis and everybody's out of control on college campuses. Right. What do you think students could do or should do? Because they're really in this. They're the agents in this largely. Right. Well,
1: I'm tempted to say students should try to be more constructive in how they describe what they're trying to do in these sorts of incidents. Setting aside, obviously, the fact that students need to not engage in violence to get their point across, that goes without saying. In addition, I'm, I'm tempted to say students could certainly frame things more constructively when they make some of their critiques. But at the same time, you know what? These are 18, 19 year olds, 20 year old students who are trying out new identities, new tactics, new values every day. And I don't think they're, what, they're, what most of them are doing is in any way inappropriate or irresponsible. They, they want to participate in the, in the life, in the intellectual life of their, their campus, and they're tr- finding out new ways to do it.
0: And what should administrators and faculty do? Because as we've seen, a lot of them actually don't trust their own students, which I find surprising, or I've said they're too sensitive.
1: <laughs> well, no, I, I think that's exactly it. I think that it's this breakdown of communication and trust between faculty, administrators, and students. This is... This shows itself in a lot of different ways in the erosion of faculty governance, in administrative affairs, in the kind of dismissiveness and high-handedness that a lot of administrators show towards students, and also a student distrust of many of the faculty as well. Right? I think there really are high levels, or levels that are too high, of student distrust and skepticism towards their, their professors and their faculty. What we need is some kind of more open... Environment of communication and shared governance where all the stakeholders, faculty, uh, administrators, students, and staff, all have a role to play. That evaporates the moment that outside actors, politicians, activists, media groups inter, you know, interfere and, and start to get involved in campus affairs. Immediately it gets polarized, immediately it gets politicized, and all the viable on campus solutions just disappear. So what I'd like to see is to have the academy remove itself, or be allowed to remove itself from the culture war, because a lot of these issues don't require policy responses from politicians. The solutions can be found within the university itself.
0: Right. No, I I, I like this. I think you're right. There has to be a lot more communication within the university before other people describe what happens there. Right. So I want to thank you for um, I really think your work is really important to have provided a bit of a corrective to these stories, which people are worried about. But I think you've sort of slowed down the debate in a productive way to say this is not a crisis with two actors who are antagonizing each other. But there's actually more 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 things at stake. And the studies, we should be cautious to to extrapolate from some studies to say the entire university is in peril now. That's right.
1: Yeah. Well, thank
0: you very much. I I really
1: enjoyed my time, and that was a great conversation.
0: Great. Thank you so much, and I hope to have you back on the podcast at some point in the future.